Amen. Well, I love the season of Advent, and I love the Advent hymns that we sing, so many familiar Christmas carols and songs that proclaim uh, the Messiah and the coming of the Messiah, and I hope uh, that that helps you during this very unusual Christmas season. I've talked to many of you, and I've heard uh, the similar thing, that it just doesn't feel like Christmas this year, and things are just so different. This is usually a time of year that's marked by large gatherings and coming together with family and friends and travel, and so much of that looks different. But what should not look different is why we celebrate and what we celebrate this time of the year, the coming of Christ our Lord. And so I hope it brings you joy and encouragement as we are able to gather and sing these songs. I hope that you will join us uh, on Christmas Eve. We'll be having a Christmas Eve service at 5.30, and much of what we'll be doing is singing together and proclaiming the coming of Christ. That is a wonderful opportunity for you to invite family and friends who are willing and able uh, in the midst of all that's going on to gather together with us, and we hope that you can do that on Christmas Eve. But for today, if you will turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel 15, if you're not there already, uh, for you, if you're a guest this morning, uh, we walk through books of the Bible here at Bloomfield Baptist Church, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. That means we, we stand together and read very long sections of the Scripture, and we, we do this because all Scripture is inspired by God, and all of it is profitable for us, and for us to understand what's taking place in the biblical narrative of the Old Testament, we really need to walk through it in this way. We can't just pick and choose verses that we might feel, well, that inspires me or that's encouraging me. We, we need to consider the big picture in the whole counsel of God's Word. And so that's why we walk through books of the Bible. That's why we're walking through 1 Samuel in particular, 1 Samuel 15 this morning. Now, if you've not been with us in this walk so far, here's a very quick summary. God's people are living during a time, the period of the judges, when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Now, that might be how many of us would consider our culture today. Uh, everybody's playing by their own rules. Everybody's uh, deciding for themselves what's right and wrong. That's not new. This has existed as long as man has existed in rebellion to man's God. And so in 1 Samuel 15, or 1 Samuel, something takes place in that period of the judges. Uh, the people, the Israelites, in their rebellion against God and against His Word, they reject God's lordship. Now what they do is this. They look around at the surrounding nations. They notice all those nations have a king. Uh, but they don't have an earthly king. God is their king, and they want to be like their surrounding nations. They want to be like them. They want a king like them. And so they cry out for a king. God warns them. Says, if you get a king, you're not going to like it. Here's the problems. They ignore God's warning. And so God eventually gives them Saul. Now Saul starts out well as the first king of Israel. But as time goes on, Saul turns from the Lord. Saul doesn't obey God's instruction. Saul rejects God's word. And ultimately, God rejects Saul. And we see the culmination of that in today's passage. Now this has been building. Back in 1 Samuel 13, uh, Saul did not obey God. He was not patient. He did not wait on God's instructions and do things the way God told him to do them. And so God's prophet, his priest, his judge Samuel comes and he gives a, a word 
to Saul and he lets him know that his household will not reign forever. In other words, God's going to cut him off in his kingship. And, and that's disappointing because his son Jonathan would have been a great king. We've already seen John, uh, Jonathan act in ways more valiant, more courageous than his father. But part of the consequence of Saul's sin is on his family. And so his son won't become king and his kingship over the people is not going to end well. This foolishness of Saul continues to the point we get to today where now the Lord just ultimately rejects Saul. And so we're going to look at this entire chapter again. It's a, it's a long section of Scripture, but my prayer is that God would teach us from it. There are some difficult things in this passage today, and my prayer is that we would better understand them. So if you're able to now, out of reverence for God's Word, if you would stand together as I read for us 1 Samuel 15, beginning there in verse 1. And this is the holy word of God. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Teleim. 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah to as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. Then he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry. And he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel said, came to Saul. And Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. Then Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. 
Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought out Agag, the king of Amalek. And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord our God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away. Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not like a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow down before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed down before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. If you would pray with me. Father, we pray that you would teach us through this ancient word, through this biblical narrative, through this story of the rejection of Saul, how it is we are to live today, how it is we are to respond today, how it is we are to view and understand and respond in repentance and faith to the gospel of our Lord Jesus. We pray, God, as we consider a text that has some very difficult verses in it, that you would teach us and lead us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you may be aware there was a bit of controversy around a Charlie Brown Christmas this year. Uh, this is a Christmas special that I'm sure most of you in this room have seen. It's been on the air since 1965 for many of those years, appearing on CBS. But the, the stir came because now in the land of all these streaming opportunities, uh, Apple had bought the rights to all the Peanuts movies. Uh, the, the great pumpkin movie, the Thanksgiving special, and a Charlie Brown Christmas, and as such, the only way you could watch it was to subscribe to this service they offer. Well, 
there was quite an outcry about this, and so uh, Apple actually made a deal with PBS, and so tonight, one night only, uh, you can watch on public television a Charlie Brown Christmas special. And, and I would encourage you to, because of all the Christmas specials out there, there are some very unique things about this one, principally, uh, that the Scripture shared in it. <laughs> Uh, there's that scene where uh, Linus comes out with his little blue blanket and he tells everyone the true meaning of Christmas and he quotes from the Gospel of Luke. It's a scene that even back in 1965 was rather controversial. It's a scene that TV executives wanted to have cut out of that Charlie Brown Christmas special. It's a, a scene that Charles Schultz, who designed the Peanuts and designed the Charlie Brown Christmas special, insisted on being included. And after a battle back and forth and back and forth, Schultz won, and that scene was included and still is included. You know, we hear stories like that. I think for many of us as believers, we, we, we just push back about against this type of political correctness. We're very quick to decry the Christmas special that leaves out the gospel or controversies like this where TV executives don't want the gospel of Luke quoted. We're usually the first ones who, who want to push back against the public sector when they don't want to acknowledge the truth of God's word or how it is God's word says we should live. When we push back against this sanitizing of scripture, this editing of God's word. And yet I fear for many of us, we're guilty of doing that very thing when we consider the whole counsel of Scripture. There are many passages, there are many verses that we tend to edit out. And if we don't actually edit them out, we, we kind of skim over them. And if we don't skim over them, maybe we read them, but they are far from the verses that we put on our t-shirts and our bumper stickers. <laughs> There are passages of Scripture that usually just don't get preached on because they're difficult passages and they're easier just to skim over. Passages like verse 3 of 1 Samuel 15 where God commands the slaughter of children and infants. Chapters like 1 Samuel 15 where on one hand we read God say, well, I will not regret I will not relent like man. I'm not like men. And then the very same chapter says, I regret and I relent. <laughs> Chapters that seem to say two different things and seem to give us very troubling statements when we consider how God's Word tells us that all life is created in the image of God. When we consider what God's Word teaches about how God designs and knits and creates a child in the womb of its mother, and yet here we see the command to destroy infants and children. It is easier for us to skim over these texts. But God's task for us today is not just to take the easy route. It's to walk through His Word and to learn from it. And so I hope that that's what we can do because God's Word says of itself that all Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture, not most Scripture, not some Scripture, but all Scripture is God-inspired. That means He breathed out His Word. And it is profitable for us. It teaches us. It corrects us. It reproves us. It trains us in righteousness. And so we need to be attentive to it. We need to listen to it. And we need to learn from it. And I pray that's what we'll do today as we walk through this text together. Beginning with that first point that I put there in your notes. This lesson we learn from the foolishness of Saul. Partial obedience is disobedience. 
Partial obedience as disobedience. As we pick up in chapter 15, we have Samuel coming to Saul. Now it's important to remember that Samuel hasn't come to Saul since 1 Samuel chapter 13. And if you remember what happened back in chapter 13, that's where you see Saul's foolishness. That's where you see Saul not obeying the commands of God. That's where Saul does not wait on Samuel as instructed. That's where Saul decides he will offer a sacrifice to the Lord in the way in which he thinks is best. Now, if you know the Word of God, you know that God has very specific instructions to His people in the Old Testament on how sacrifices are to be offered, on how He is to be worshipped. But here Saul decides he will decide rather than listen to God. And he disobeys God and Samuel calls him out on his foolishness. And when Samuel does this, he leaves Saul. And when Samuel leaves Saul, the counsel of God leaves Saul. And so at that point, you may remember, Saul becomes very religious. Saul is asking for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought out. Saul is consulting other priests. Saul is inquiring of God and God is silent when it comes to Saul. There's a break in their covenant relationship. But now, something's happened. Something's changed. Something's different. There's another opportunity here for Saul to live in obedience to God's command because now Samuel has come to Saul with a word from the Lord. A word of divine judgment against the Amalekites. A word that contains this difficult statement that he is to kill both man and woman, child and infant. And how are we to understand this? Well, first we need to understand who the Amalekites were. These descendants of Amalek. They were a wicked people. In fact, anytime you see them mentioned in the Scripture, it's always that they're wicked and it's always that they're in opposition to the people of Israel. And we see one of their wicked acts when God's people uh, were coming out of Egypt on the exodus to the promised land. And if you remember that in our study of Exodus, you remember that there were times when they grew very faint and very weak. And so you can imagine what it would be like traveling with hundreds of thousands, the ones who were weakest and the ones who were faintest, they would kind of go towards the back of that convoy. And so the Amalekites were so wicked and were so evil, they attacked the Israelites, but the way they attacked them was by taking out their weakest They attacked them from the rear, these older people, these weak people. That's who they attacked, and that's who they slaughtered first. Well, God sees this, and God judges this. So in Deuteronomy chapter 25, God tells Moses, when you come into the land of promise, and when you've had a chance to rest, and when your people have been replenished, then at that point, I'm going to bring divine judgment against Amalek. And I'm going to bring divine judgment against His people, and I'm going to utterly wipe them off the face of of the earth. Well, time goes on. The people eventually go into the promised land, but they don't wipe out the Amalekites. And you can imagine for the Amalekites, if they had heard of this command of destruction coming their way, and then never saw that destruction happen, they've just kind of grown kind of callous to the whole idea of God's judgment. So they just keep attacking God's people, and they're enemies of God's people, and they seem to have no fear of God. But as we see throughout God's Word, His divine judgment will indeed come. And now it is coming. And it's going to come at the hand of Saul. And now Saul is tasked with wiping out the Amalekites, including their children and their infants. This is a hard verse. And it can only be understood in the context of understanding God's divine judgment. And friends, what we see... From Genesis to Revelation, 
It is that God's divine judgment will come against the wicked. It's not unique to 1 Samuel 15. And we see it all the way back in Genesis. You consider that God created in the garden this sanctuary for Adam and Eve and for them to have a family and to grow and flourish and develop and gave them everything they would ever need and yet they rebelled against God and they sinned against God and fellowship with God was broken. That covenant relationship was interrupted. And so God told them even before they sinned that if they sinned, death would come and death indeed does come to Adam and Eve and all others that would follow them. But wickedness grows. People don't, uh, they don't listen to the commands of God. They ignore the commands of God. And as wickedness grows, we don't get beyond chapter 6 of Genesis before God looks at the wickedness of man and He decides to wipe out man and to destroy man utterly and completely. Now in His grace and in His mercy, He deems Noah righteous and He spares Noah and his family. But I'll remind you that apart from Noah and his family, every living thing on the earth, apart from what was on the ark, was wiped out. All of mankind, all of their children, all of their infants face the divine judgment of God. We see it not just in Genesis, not just in 1 Samuel 15. We see it throughout the Word of God all the way up to the very last chapter of the last book in Revelation. Because there we see Jesus saying what? Behold, I am coming soon. And He is bringing with Him divine judgment. I think that the problem that many of us have with 1 Samuel 15 isn't just a problem with this specific order. It's a problem with divine judgment. And we don't seem to mind divine judgment when it comes to the Charles Mansons and the Hitlers of the world. And when it comes to these people that everyone kind of agrees are just wicked, evil people, we don't seem to struggle with the notion of a Manson or a Hitler under the wrath of God in an eternal hell. We kind of like divine judgment when it comes to those types of people. But where we wrestle with divine judgment is when it comes to our neighbor and our family member and our friend who seems to be a pretty decent person, maybe a good moral person, but an irreligious person, a person who has nothing to do with the gospel of our Lord Jesus. We, we wrestle with this idea, not so much based on age, but we wrestle with this idea based on the divine judgment of God and the wrath of God coming against all who will not confess Christ as Lord. And if we're honest with ourselves, this is where our wrestle is. But I'll remind you of this this morning, friends. That without divine judgment, we have no gospel. Because it is only through the divine judgment that God put His Son, His perfect Son, His sinless Son, His only Son on the cross to face the divine judgment that you and I deserved. He, he took the wrath that you and I rightly deserved on the cross. It is only through the divine judgment of God coming down on a sinless Savior that you and I can be saved. Without divine judgment, there is no gospel. Without the gospel, there is no hope. This passage reminds us of that as we see now this divine judgment coming against the Amalekites. And so Saul is given very specific instructions by God to bring this divine judgment against the Amalekites and what he needs to do. And notice Saul goes in and Saul does some of it, but not all of it. Saul's not wrestling here with the issue of infants and children. Saul spares the king. <laughs> Never really explains why. Saul spares the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatted calves and the lambs and those things that he deemed to be good. 
Now notice that. The scripture tells us specifically he didn't wipe them out because he thought they were good. We'll come back to that. But he destroyed those things that he thought to be wicked. And so what we see here from Saul is partial obedience. And friends, partial obedience is disobedience. Saul obeyed most of what God told him to do. This is his response when Samuel comes to him. Samuel says, well, I I did most of it. I, I did this part of it. And he wants to be rewarded for that. But friends, God does not reward partial obedience. You might think of it this way. Let's imagine that this week you decide to get your car washed. And you find a a teenager who says, yeah, I need some Christmas money and I'll wash your car. And so for $20, I'm going to wash your car and you make that agreement and that's great. And so you leave your car there and you come back an hour later and you notice that the car is only half washed. (laughs) That the driver's side is really clean, but the other side is filthy. You can actually look down the car and see a line down the middle. This part's dirty, this part's clean. And so you go to the person you asked to wash it, uh, that you contracted to wash it, and you say, what happened here? And they say, well, you know, I started thinking about it. I realized I only need $10. (laughs) And I washed half your car, so can I have my $10 now? Do you pay them $10? No, you you insist that they finish washing the car. You don't pay them anything at all. Why? Because they didn't do the job they were supposed to do. Our parents, you might think of it this way. Let's say that you have some arrangement with your children and you tell them, well, if you do these specific chores, then your reward will be this allowance. And so among those chores are you need to clean your room once a week and you go at the end of the week and you notice their room is just completely filthy. I know this is hard to imagine, but go with me for a second. Room's completely filthy. And so you go to the child and you say, listen, I'm not going to reward you for disobedience, so you've got to clean this room if you want your allowance. Oh, yeah, I want my allowance. I'll clean the room. And so you come back an hour or two later, and you notice only about a third of the room is clean. In fact, they've got a real fancy little artwork they've put together, and they've kind of mapped out the room, and they've said, you know, I figure here that I I clean 33% of the room, so I'd like 33% of my allowance. Do you pay them? No. If you would, don't. You need to tell them, go finish cleaning your room. We don't reward partial obedience. And yet that's exactly what we expect God to do with us. We think if we've done some of what God said, most of what he commanded. Well, well, we've done better than other people. I mean, look around us. We're, we're at least trying in this area. And Well, so-and-so didn't do this, and at least I did this right. And we expect God to reward partial obedience. But friends, we are reminded from this passage that partial obedience is disobedience. And God does not reward our disobedience. We also learn here, point two there in your outline, that obedience is better than sacrifice. And so as the story continues here, we come to another difficult part of the passage where now Saul, because of his disobedience and in response to it, that the Lord says something to him through Samuel. And in verse 10 he says, I regret that I made Saul king. Now this is one of many times in the scripture where we read this language from God, this sovereign God, this all-knowing God, this God who not only sees but controls future events, saying, I regret. And it's especially a little confusing for us because in the same chapter, 
God says twice, I regret that I made Saul king. Some of your translations say, I repent that I made Saul king. And in the same passage, he also says, well, I'm not like man, I'm not going to regret. So how do we reconcile these things? Especially when we consider the sovereignty and the providence and the omniscience of God. Let me tell you how we don't reconcile it. There's one school of thought that is heretical. It's not biblical, but it's an attempt to reconcile this. It's called open theism. And what open theism does is it looks at God and basically says, well, God is limited in his knowledge of future events. God is limited in his control over future events. Therefore, if something bad happens, we don't have to wrestle with this idea of God knowing something and allowing it to happen because God didn't know it was going to happen. And so it basically reduces God and makes God more like us in an attempt to deal with passages like this one. So, for example, the open theist doesn't really have a problem with suffering in events like 9-11 because they would say, well, God didn't know that those planes were going to hit the Twin Towers. God was just as sad about it as you and I are. God grieved just like we do. God had no idea that was coming. When our, our loved one gets cancer, when people around us suffer, there's no wrestle there. Well, God just didn't know. God couldn't control. But friends, let me remind you, that's completely inconsistent with what God's Word teaches us about God. He's a sovereign God. He's in full control. Are we able to reconcile all these things? No, we wrestle with these things. I, like you, have a lot of questions that I would like to ask God, but I guarantee you this, on that day when all is brought into account, I will have very few questions and I will be on my knees worshiping a holy God. And I'll be thankful and overwhelmed that I may be in His presence. Because I don't deserve it, neither do you. We find here that Obedience is better than sacrifice. And within that, this difficult teaching about regret. And I think the way we reconcile it is this, is understanding that God is a personal God who is personally involved in the life of His creation. God did not set the world into motion like a clockmaker. He didn't just design us like a clock and twist it and turn it and set it and then step back and let it all play out. He is personally involved in the life of His creation. That, that's why in our worship time we are praying to God, we are asking God, we are crying out to God for things. That's why in recent weeks we've had a situation after situation where during our service we find out at the end of the first service, well, so-and-so's in the hospital and this person is dealing with COVID and this person's on a, a ventilator and this person just got taken to the hospital. And what we immediately do is we, as a church, come together and we pray and we beseech God and we cry out to God because He's a personal God. God involved in the life of His creation. That the change that we see here is not a change in God, it's a change in Saul. Saul is the one who is now disobedient. Saul is the one who's turning from God. Saul is the one trying to bargain with God. Saul is trying to adjust things based on what he thinks are right and wrong. God's character does not change. And so the regret, the repentance, the relenting that we see here essentially is God turning from the blessing he had placed on Saul, and now he's going to place it on David. It's the consequence of Saul's disobedience. It's not God just whimsically changing his mind like you and I might change our minds. <laughs> this is not God deciding where he's going to go to lunch today. Well, I'd like this. Oh, well, that sounds good. Well, maybe we'll eat that. This is not God sitting there when the food comes saying, well, I thought I wanted this, but yours looks better. <laughs> no, this is an unchanging God personally involved in the life of his creation 
And we see what happens when Saul does not repent. And so, here now Samuel confronts Saul and he learns, you'll see here just more about the character of Saul, that after not fully obeying God, that what does Saul do? He builds a monument to himself. <laughs> I mean, he's living for his own glory, not for the glory of God. And so you can just picture Samuel coming to Saul with this word from the Lord, and time after time, turn after turn, he's just seeing more and more foolishness from Saul, and it's grieving him, and he mourns it. But verse 13, verse 13 Samuel comes to Saul, and notice Saul's first words. I performed the commandment of the Lord. I did what I was supposed to do. And as he's saying these things, the sheep are walking between him and Samuel. God says, I want you to wipe out all this livestock. And as he's sitting there saying, well, I did exactly what God said to do. The livestock's all around him. And Samuel notes this. Well, what is this I hear then? What is this I see then? I mean, this is like, if you might imagine parents, you, you make cookies one afternoon. And you tell your kids, listen, the cookies need to cool. They're, they're too hot. They're going to burn your tongue. So we're going to let them cool. And after dinner, hey, you can have as many cookies as you want after dinner. But don't eat them yet. Just leave them. And you walk out the room for five minutes and you come back and you have a child there and their face is covered with cookies. Their cheeks are full of cookies. They got cookie on their shirt. And you say to them, what happened? And they say, who ate the cookies? And there they are, cookie all over themselves. It's clear that they did it. And they're saying, they're saying, well, I did exactly what you told me to do. That's the picture we have here of Saul. And so then Saul just keeps giving excuses. As Samuel continues to confront him, verse 15, what's he say? Well, okay, I, I did keep some of the livestock, but I was going to make a sacrifice to the Lord. This, this was a real spiritual thing. Again here, Saul's playing by his own rules. He's trying to make things as religious as he can. But I mean, this, this is the equivalent of us seeing God's instruction in His Word, thou shalt not steal, but then deciding to go rob a bank but give 20% to the church. <laughs> I mean, Saul is just making this stuff up as he goes. But Samuel continues to confront him on his sin. Verse 17, he he asked him why he didn't bring divine judgment against the Amalekites like he was supposed to. He, he never really offers an excuse for why he spared Agag the king. He says the animals were kept to be a sacrifice. And then Samuel gives him this much-needed rebuke, and I think it's needed for us today as well. He says, God wants your obedience more than he wants your sacrifice. That, that translates for us today, friends. Hear me, God wants your obedience today, December 13th, 2020, each of you. He wants you to obey Him more than He wants you to put a check in the plate or in the basket. He wants your obedience more than He wants you to sign up to serve on a committee or serve with the children's ministry or just volunteer more. He wants your obedience more than anything else you can offer. In fact, God doesn't even give you the option of making a substitute for obedience. He says He wants obedience over and beyond all other things. That means you can't deal with God. You can't come before a holy God and say, well, God, I know that I really messed up here and here, and I know I really struggled with this verse or this teaching or this command, but, but look at all this other stuff I did. Look at this monument I built. 
You know, I gave a lot more than somebody else. I served a lot more. I've been in this committee for so long. As if God's going to grade on a curve. But we're reminded here we're called to obey God's word, all of his word, on his terms, not ours. God doesn't bargain with us, friend. And that's why we see here point three, that obedience, what it truly is at the end of the day, it requires genuine repentance. Obedience requires genuine repentance. So as we continue in the text and go through this remaining passage, we see here that Saul offers, uh, excuse, he, he offers so many excuses. He offers a lot of apologies, but he never actually repents. Verse 24, he admits that he sinned, but then he blames the people. Oh, it was their fault. They, they forced me to do it. I feared them. I did what they wanted. In verse 30, again, he admits that he sinned, but then he goes on to tell Saul, well, yeah, I know I sinned. I'm sorry for sinning. Hey, could you honor me real quick before the people? Hey, he's just concerned about himself. And so then, verse 31, we have this passage where Samuel turns away for, from Saul and how this will culminate is this will be the last time he turns from him. We won't see him again until his death. Part of this, he does what Saul should have done. He executes divine judgment on Agag. This is a picture of Saul's lack of repentance. Saul's refusal to obey the full command of God. That even in saying his, he was sorry, he would not change. And so Samuel has to carry out this task because Saul persists in his foolishness and lack of repentance. It reminds us that obedience requires genuine repentance. And what that means for us today is this. It's not enough to say you're sorry if there's no fruit of repentance in your life. This is an age-old problem. This is what took place when John the Baptist was baptizing for repentance and the, the, the religious leaders of the day came down to witness and see what was going on and John immediately calls them out and he says, go bear fruit keeping with your repentance. He's saying, you know how to be religious. You know how to say you're sorry. You know how to make it look like you're grieving sin, but your life's not actually showing any fruit of repentance. And friends, sadly, that's, that's true of a lot of us today. A lot of, of us today, we're, we're sorry when we get caught, but we're not really sorry for our sin. A lot of us are quick to say, well, I'm sorry, I, I won't do it again, and then we do it again. In fact, some of you in this room, you, you've grown weary of hearing the same person give the same excuse over and over again and say, well, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but there's actually no change. And why is that? Because there's no repentance. So, so what does genuine repentance look like? I'll give you an illustration. I've shared this before. Some of you have heard me share it. I have a friend named Hank. We were in campus ministry together for a number of years. Hank's children are all grown and older now, but this was when they were young. And his youngest, I think, at this point was about five or six years old. Hank and his family had gone to Gatlinburg for a vacation. And if you've been to Gatlinburg, you know there's a very busy section there in the street and cars kind of cruising up and down the road. And pretty congested and that's where Hank was at and so uh, he and his wife and his kids were standing there on the streets of Gatlinburg and you've probably walked by that window and been mesmerized by the guy making the taffy and they were and so they're watching the taffy being made and then at some point Hank looks down and notices that his five-year-old isn't beside him anymore he looks over and he realizes that his five-year-old is running straight towards the road 
and straight towards the other side of the road to a store he wanted to go to. And as he watches his son running straight towards oncoming traffic, he notices that this very large truck is moving very quickly down the road, and he can picture what's about to happen. And without hesitation, Hank yelled out to his son, Stop! Stop! Turn around and come here right now! And that five-year-old, in that moment, as they were about to step on that street right in front of that truck, they stopped in their tracks, and they turned around, and they went straight back to their father. Friends, that's what repentance is. Repentance isn't saying, I'm sorry, while we step in front of dangerous traffic. Repentance isn't persisting in our sin and saying, oh yeah, I'm sorry I shouldn't have done this. Oh, I'm sorry I shouldn't have done this. I'm sorry I shouldn't have done this. Repentance is stopping and turning and trusting in the holy word of God that God knows better than we do. And that His commands are there for a reason. And that He's called us to say yes to what He says yes to and no to what He says no to. And there is good here. Repentance is not trying to make a deal with God or trying to bargain with God or trying to give our version of what we think is good and bad to God. Repentance is hearing the voice of our Heavenly Father when He says stop and stopping. And when He says turn around, turning. And when He says come to Me, we come to Him. The sad reality for so many of us today is we have said I'm sorry so many times, but we've not stopped and we've not turned. There's no fruit or repentance in our life. And what that means, friends, is we haven't truly responded to the gospel because without repentance, there is no genuine faith. There is no saving faith. It's not enough just for us to intellectually agree with the Word of God and say, well, yeah, I can see where you're going there, God. Yeah, I think that's probably better than what I think. It's it's putting our full trust and our full hope in Christ and in the Gospel. It's believing in this ancient truth that's so bizarre and peculiar to a lost and dying world that because of our sin, we, we rightly deserve the divine judgment of God. But God in His grace took His Son, His only Son, His perfect Son, and He brought His divine judgment on Him. And then we have this great exchange of the Gospel that God takes His wrath and He pours it out on His Son who doesn't deserve it. And then through repentance and faith, we we receive the righteousness of Christ that that we don't deserve. It's the free offer of the Gospel to all who will believe. But if there's no repentance, there's no belief. If there's no repentance, there's no genuine salvation. We see the story of Saul here come to just a sad conclusion. We're going to pick up in in the hope next week of David and what God's going to do through him, who will be another flawed leader. (laughs) But for now, what we see is is Saul and and the grief over his sin. Friends, is there there grief over your sin today? Are are you grieving over your sin? Are you willing to turn and willing to repent? To do that, it means you need to Abandon all else and put your absolute trust and confidence fully in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to grab onto that gospel, you need to let go of everything else. If you're able to watch that Charlie Brown Christmas special tonight, and I hope you are, I hope you'll pay attention to that moment where Linus comes on stage 
And he quotes from Luke chapter 2. And I hope you'll notice something very small, but I think very substantial that happens there. But the moment that Linus, this little character who's always holding on to that blanket, that blue blanket if you remember, kind of his, his security blanket. That, that moment that he quotes from Luke chapter 2 verse 10 when the angels proclaim, fear not, he lets go of the blanket. Now I might be reading too much into this, but I think there's a picture there of what happens when we genuinely respond to the gospel. We, we let go of everything else. And we place our trust and our hope fully in Jesus. And if you haven't done that, then I hope today you will. And maybe, friend, you have done that, but you're struggling this morning with truly trusting in Jesus. You're anxious, you're worried, you're weary, you're overwhelmed. I pray that this third Sunday of Advent would be a reminder to us all that God indeed is worthy of our trust and our hope. And he asked that we put it in him, and I hope you will. If you will, pray with me to that end. Father God, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus that saves us and secures us. We don't deserve it. We don't merit it. We haven't earned it. But you are rich in your grace towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And you tell us, Lord, if we will confess that Jesus indeed is Lord and put our trust and our hope and our faith in Him, we will be saved. And that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. We saw a great testimony of that in our first service this morning as Trey Ingram on his 11th birthday came and made a public profession of his faith, the trust that he was putting in Jesus and that obedience in baptism. And we've seen that in many others. I pray that we would see that today, Lord, that there would be some among us who would put their hope and their trust in Jesus. We know that's not a work of man. We know that's not a work of manipulation or of turning words certain ways. We know that's a work of the Spirit, so we pray your Spirit would do that work now. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, if you would stand together as we offer an opportunity to respond to the Word of God. And we're going to respond to God's Word through our voices and singing. And I, I hope you'll sing with us this great Advent hymn, Joy to the World. The, the joy we have because of the gospel we've received. As we sing, we do invite you to come. If God is leading you to come today and make a public profession of your faith to follow through on that profession with obedience and baptism to start the process of church membership or perhaps you just need someone to pray with you and I would be privileged to do that. Others would as well. So we invite you to sing. We invite you to come and respond as God leads and as we sing Joy to the World.